which should take us into next spring. We'll be giving our attention to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are two books that are kind of like the flyover states of the U.S., you know, places that you go through on the way to somewhere else. So you probably only read Ezra and Nehemiah if you're going through a read-through-the-Bible plan, and you have to get through it. <laughs> but they're not books that you quote all the time. They're not books that people are going to, like for my favorite verse. Um, so they're a little obscure. We don't really know where, what, what do these refer to? What, what is Ezra and Nehemiah? I don't even know who those people are. So we're going to be talking about that, though, because surprisingly there is something really important in here. The theme of Ezra and Nehemiah is renewal. It's renewal of God's people. And uh, Savannah has made a cool graphic, which sometimes shows up on here, but uh, you'll see it every week. It's called Renewing God's Community. That's what we're calling this series. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah is the account of the people of Israel returning to Jerusalem after many years in exile. It covers about a 100-year period about them coming back and what happened afterwards. It's about a new day, a new beginning. So to appreciate this, a little background is necessary before we read. At this point in history, the promised land of Israel, the, the city of Jerusalem in particular, is a desolate, unpopulated wasteland. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians long before that. The southern kingdom of Judah had, had fallen to the Chaldeans. At one time, Jerusalem was this thriving city. In Psalms, it says, It was beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, the city of the great king. That's from Psalm 48. But in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the city. Uh, he turned it into rubble. The temple, the houses people lived in, the walls that protected the city, all of that was destroyed and the people were carried away into Babylon. And all of that was a consequence of their many centuries of wandering away from the Lord further and further and further. And finally, this is where they ended up. So with all that destruction came the death of the dream uh, the death of the promise, it seemed like, that God, who chose Israel, he called them to be blessed and to be a blessing to the nations, and that all seems to have fallen apart because now they're, they're captives. They, they don't have their own uh, freedom to do what they want. They're underneath the rule of a superpower. They're a disrespected religious minority in a culture that worships many idols. So it seems like everything fell apart. And now they're in a place where they don't want to be. This is the place where Nebuchadnezzar erected a 90-foot statue of gold, an image that he put out on a plane, and he said, everybody needs to fall down and worship this thing. This is the place where the lament of Psalm 137 was written. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. From there, our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. That's an expression of the lament of being displaced from their, their home country and put into a place where they're despised and, and they're the, the object of derision. 
So that's what life was like in Babylon for the Jews. It was degrading. It was discouraging. It was sometimes life-threatening. You had to live with an ache in Babylon. I wish I wasn't in this place. I wish things were different. This is a description of a people in need of renewal. People who need to be renewed in their relationship with God. So Ezra and Nehemiah tell that story, the story of the renewal. How the people got back to Jerusalem and then what happened. It's a story of desire fulfilled, of restoration to the kind of life that God intended for them, as well as for us even though it would be attended with many ongoing challenges, as we will read about. Now, this is something we can relate to, I think, and this is why we have the series. Who wouldn't love a fresh start that leads to more joy and peace and satisfaction? I think we all want that. We're always in need of renewal because we live in a world that's sucking the life out of us so much, day by day. There are joys, but we live with this knowledge that everything isn't as it should be. And just like the Jews in exile, the reality is that things that are th- the, the world is the way it is because of sin, because of our sin and other people's sin. So where does the renewal that we want come from? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah shows us the way to renewal, and it ultimately points to the renewal that comes to us through Jesus Christ. So with those things in mind, let's read the beginning of the book, and then we'll bring our hearts before the Lord in prayer. Ezra 1, 1 through 5. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, we look for your stirring. We ask for it. We ask for the Holy Spirit who is among us to be working now, to open up our hearts to receive, our ears to hear your message of hope through this passage. We know that you're here to do that very thing. So now, Lord, honor your name. Show us your glory. Give us hope for today and tomorrow. And 
for renewal. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we read that these things began to take place in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, we know pretty, pretty accurately when that was. Because archaeologists have dug all over the place <laughs> in the Middle East, and they've dug up all sorts of old stones left there by ancient kings. And the bigger the king, the more likely you were going to find a stone that talked about his great exploits. Well, Cyrus is one of those great kings. He created the largest empire the world had ever seen at that point. It was from India all the way to Greece. It was from Kazakhstan all the way down to Ethiopia. He had the huge swath. Of, of civilization. It was all under his power. So he left behind cuneiform tablets and so forth that talked about his exploits. And so we know the first year of Cyrus was the year that he conquered Babylon and entered the city and became the king in the place of the kings that started with Nebuchadnezzar and went on down. That was 539 B.C. So that was about 58 years after the first of three waves of Jews went into Babylon. That's when Cyrus took over. So there's a new boss in town, a new sovereign ruler with the power to enforce his will on the people. And if you're a Jewish exile living in Babylon, now here's the new guy. What's he going to be like? <laughs> Who's, what's the new ruler's policy regarding Jews, regarding the exiles who were brought here a long time ago? Is he going to leave us alone? Or is he going to make life even harder for us? They don't know. All they know is now there's, there's somebody new in charge here, and they're waiting to find out what's this going to look like. They're very nervous. Well, what happened next was something they didn't see coming. Cyrus, king of Persia great ruler of the world, proclaimed this, you can go home. <laughs> I let the Jews go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. Like, say what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Of all the things that you could do, you have the power to do anything you want. And you say, we can go back to Jerusalem. That's right. Because God has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So, may your God be with you. Go, go rebuild it. In fact, I'm even going to fund it, he says. You'll be assisted with silver and gold, with gold, gold, goods and beasts, uh, besides free will offerings for the house of God. I'm going to fund this, this journey. I'm going to fund the rebuilding. Like, that's a dream come true. This is like, they had to be like winning the lottery in terms of shock and joy. Or probably a better illustration is it was like Lincoln freeing the slaves after the Civil War. And not only that, like giving each one of them a check to start over as free men and women. That's what this would feel like to them. It was massive. This was the ticket to renewal that they prayed for, hoped for, for decades. Now it's coming to pass. And so as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to follow the next 100 years about what that all looked like as they start coming back. But for today, we're just going to focus on how this turn of events came about, what's the real reason for it, and how it applies to how God renews us today. There are patterns here 
for how the Lord rehydrates our soul and, and gives joy back again and hope to the hopeless. There's patterns here. So the first pattern that we see in the passage is that renewal begins with God's initiative. It begins with God's initiative. That's in verse 1. Notice the reason that Cyrus gave permission and funding to the Jews. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made the proclamation. So two reasons are given here for the proclamation. Why did he do it? It was so that the word of the Lord would be fulfilled. So God said something in the past about this, and now it's happening. That's one reason. The other reason is the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. So God got into the inner workings of the machinery of his mind and heart and put an idea there. I want you to do this. And he said, I'll do that. That means God initiated this turn of events, the renewal. It began, it began with God. It didn't start with the exiles. They didn't form some scheme about how they were going to get their way back there. God said, the one person in the world that can make you go back and fund it <laughs> and protect you along the way is Cyrus. And so that's the guy I'm going to put the idea in his head. I'm going to stir him up to get you to go back to Jerusalem and build my temple. That's why it happened. It, the renewal was initiated by God. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So in this case, his will was to turn Cyrus's heart and use all of that great power that he accumulated to send his people to the place of blessing. He can do that. God can work in the hearts of anybody. Believer or unbeliever? Now, at the risk of too much detail, let's just take a moment and look at the history behind this word of the Lord that was being fulfilled here or starting to be fulfilled because it's an amazing story of the, the sovereign, gracious, and merciful nature of God, His plans to do us good, plans that go back way before us. We're going to see those things fulfilled here. What did God say beforehand? What was the word of the Lord that's coming to pass through Cyrus? Well, you have to go back 200 years before this, actually. Something that God said through Isaiah, who was a prophet in like the 700s B.C. So through Isaiah, um, God said something that applies here. Back then, back in the 700s, Judah was still intact, still had their own, the city was still in good shape. Um, they were still in control of their own destiny, so to speak. <clears throat> but through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. That is remarkable. That's 150 years before Cyrus was born. There was no Cyrus when the Lord said that through Isaiah. The city was still intact. It didn't need to be rebuilt. 
And yet God is saying way back then, it's going to be torn down, but it's going to be rebuilt because I'm going to have a shepherd to do my will and rebuild it, and his name is Cyrus. The only reason that God can say that is because God is sovereign over all things and in control over all things. That's how we know. Now fast forward 150 years to Jeremiah's time. Jeremiah also delivered God's word to the people of Judah, this time right before they went into exile. So the Lord said through Jeremiah, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. It's Jeremiah 25. And then that's what happened. Not, not long after he said that, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, destroys the city. It's a wasteland, carries off the people. And the word is, this is going to be 70 years. This is going to be a while. And yet, right on the heels of that comes another prophecy through Jeremiah from Jeremiah 29, we read this last week. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So the stirring of Cyrus was the fulfillment of that word. God says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring you back to this place. And now's the time. Cyrus, here's a job for you. <laughs> So the 200-year timeline, God said way before it even happens, the city will be destroyed, but it will be rebuilt, and Silas, Cyrus, Cyrus is going to do it. And that's the word that begins to be fulfilled right here in Ezra 1.1. Do you see the sovereign work of God at, here? <laughs> do you see His gracious nature towards His people, people who deserve judgment? They're there because of their disobedience. They're there because they rejected their own God. That's why they're in exile, and yet God was preparing even before that to still bring them back, to still pursue them, to still be gracious and merciful to them, and to bless them. This is the nature of the God that we worship. God initiates the renewal, and that's the message of the New Testament also. His heart is always to go after a rebellious people, and bring them to himself. And it starts with his heart, not ours. According to Ephesians 2, our natural state is this. Paul said, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we start out dead, unresponsive to the truths about God because of our own sins. Paul described us as strangers to the covenants of promise. So all the great things that God promised to do for those who are in relationship with Him, well, we were outside of that because we're dead in our sins. None of that was for us. No hope and without God in this world is another way he puts it in, as in Ephesians chapter 2. That's our natural state, right? Dead. So God initiates the renewal. He has to. It's not going to come from us. And how does he do it? He sent his son Jesus into this world. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. How did he do it? Jesus, the God-man, gives his life as a ransom for many. He bears the guilt 
of our sin. He bears the penalty for it so that we can be pardoned. God's justice is satisfied, and yet he can be merciful to us without violating his justice. And then God stirs people's hearts to believe that, to believe that good news, this gospel. And when we do, we are made alive, we are renewed we have hope in a future. Ephesians 2, 4, 5 says it this way, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It was true for the exiles in Babylon, and it is true for us today. Restoration, life, renewal, comes from God moving toward us in great love through Jesus Christ. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, according to Ephesians 2. Stop there and just thank God for it. <laughs> that you move toward me like you move towards the exiles. Now there's a second pattern for our renewal. We touched on it, but let's give it our full attention. Renewal has God at the center. Renewal has God at the center. One thing not to miss in the narrative is the stated purpose for Cyrus allowing the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. What were they going there for? Verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. That's the thing that's on God's heart. That's the will that God had for Cyrus. Go have those people build me this house. He means the temple. That's the building that represented God's dwelling place with his people, that I'm among you. That's the building where sacrifices and offerings are made. Sacrifices for sin, offerings, free will offerings to God, worship. This is what this place is. It's a worship place. It's a place to worship the Lord our God. And so just so we don't miss it, this building is referred to three more times in the text. It's the house of the Lord in verses 3 and 5. It's the house of God in verse 4. It's all about the house. It's all about the temple. It's all about the place of worship. Why is that significant? It means the first order of business for returning to Jerusalem was not just so the exiles could go to their ancestral home and get relief from being in captivity. That was not priority number one. It was not just so they could go and live however they wanted to live. You're free to just move about. The first order of business was worship. The first order of business was return your hearts to the Lord. That's what you'll have to have if you're going to go back there to build the temple. That's priority. It's about this devotion to the Lord. That's the thing. And God is at the center of it because He's the center and the source of renewal, of life. That's a consistent message in the Scriptures. The Bible opens with, in the beginning, God. Like right there, you know. What's this book about? <laughs> God and what God is doing, has done, and will do. 
He created everything. Then we broke it. Now he's fixing it. He's going to fix it completely one day. And then the whole Bible ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. It all points back to God's grace to us through Christ. That's what the whole story is about. God is the center of it. The scriptures point us to God all the time as our hope, as our life. He's the Prince of Peace in Isaiah. He's the fountain of living waters in Jeremiah. He came to us in the person who is the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. Those are descriptions of renewal. God is always the center of it. There is no real peace, no lasting refreshment that continues beyond death apart from God. It isn't possible without Him. But in relationship with Him, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, as Titus 3.5 says, we can have all of these things. One of the hollow promises of the world is that you can live without God. And in one sense you can. You don't need to worship God in order to have food or a job or to get married or to have kids. You don't need devotion to God to become a billionaire or a world leader. On the surface level, it seems like you can do a lot of living without God. But is it really living? Or is it just a constant pursuit of something that we hope is going to make us significant or satisfied or meaningful? The writer of Ecclesiastes, who had everything that a person could want in life, money, power, pleasures, he decided that without God, all is vanity and striving after wind. He concluded the end of the matter is fear God and keep His commandments. That's where life really is. My own experience totally tracks with that. I divide my life into two parts. My years before I was awakened to the beauty of Jesus Christ and my years after, which for me that was 19 years old, second year of college. Before then, I had tragedy in my life. I had real sorrows just like everybody else does. But on the whole... I had a lot going for me. I had lots of good times. I did well in school. I was healthy and athletic. I was popular. I had lots of friends. I went to the University of Wisconsin, Madison. I was on track to becoming an engineer. I was looking forward to making a lot of money. I had all of that without God, at least my devotion to God. But I owe my very breath to God. So does everybody. But I was not devoted to him. He was not a part of my life. So how do you explain the fact that even though I had all these good things, when people came to my door to tell me about salvation in Jesus Christ, I was listening. I was interested. Why is that? My explanation? I knew deep down life is more than all those things I was chasing. I knew that was surface level. That all those things are easily lost. You can be... You, your whole life can change in an instant with a car accident. There's got to be something more permanent. There's got to be something priceless. Something that this world can't touch. And I found out the answer is Jesus Christ. 
who is the way, the truth, and the life. And when I put my trust in him, God renewed me, and he gave me life. It didn't make all the bad stuff go away. There are still plenty of more hard times ahead. I know that. But now I have a foundation to hold me up in the hard times. I found forgiveness of sin to address my guilt. I found dignity in being created in the image of God and loved by God. I found the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, as Paul put it, and I have the assurance of life after death. And so do many of you. These things are what renewal really consists of. And it's only available in God, the source and center of our renewal. So that leads to one last thing, which is our response to the stirring of God and the availability of renewal. The last point is that renewal is for those who rise up and pursue it. The response to the king's proclamation uh, from the exiles was this. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up rebuild, to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So the, first the Lord stirred up Cyrus to let the Jews go home and build the temple. Now he stirs up the hearts of the exiles to go get it done beginning with the community leaders and the spiritual leaders of the people. But they had to respond to God's stirring. They had to rise up and pursue the renewal that the Lord had made possible. They weren't going to be teleported to Jerusalem like Star Trek, you know, like, you know, stand in front of a council and like beam me over there, boom, and they just are there, and they're there in a brand new house, and everything's great. That wasn't going to happen. They would have to make the long journey. The temple wasn't going to get built by itself. They'd have to put in the work. They weren't going to experience the life that God makes possible if they didn't rise up and pursue it. Now, lest we think that was a no-brainer, that it's a foregone conclusion, they would jump at the chance to do this, it really wasn't. This was no easy journey, number one. It involved a trip of about 800 miles walking, or on a donkey or camel, through desert. Remember, this is 50 to 60 years after many of them deported. A lot of them are old. <laughs> they are not going to make this journey. Daniel was alive at this time, and he stayed in Babylon. He never left. He was probably in his mid-70s at this point, and so were a lot of other people. Some had already died there. It would be a difficult trip. That's why a lot of people weren't necessarily ready to jump on it. But also, most of the Jews living in Babylonia now had been born there. And they didn't have a natural attachment to Jerusalem. They had obeyed the instructions of the Lord in Jeremiah 29. Build houses and live in them. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. These next generations were born in Babylon. They didn't really know Jerusalem. They'd never been there. 
They'd heard stories, but they didn't have a personal attachment to it. It was sort of like if, if your parents lived in Florida, grew up in Florida, and then moved to Colorado for some temporary reason, some job change, but had kids there, and those kids had kids, and then they say, hey, let's go back to Florida. I really want to go back to Florida. Well, the kids and the grandkids wouldn't necessarily be all that excited about it. Well, like, I live in Colorado. I was born here. They've got attachment now to the place that they were raised in. So it's going to have to be more than homesickness that sends people back to Jerusalem. They're going to need a more compelling reason than that. It would have to be a conviction that we're supposed to be there because this is the place God wants us to be. This was the land of promise. This is where he wanted to bless us and make us a blessing to the nations. It's going to have to be an act of devotion to God. And that's where the hand of God steps in. He stirred up the spirits of the people to go, to rise up and go rebuild. Again, he's pursuing, he's initiating. Who gets stirred up? The, the leaders, the tri- it says the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, so tribal leaders who have influence relationally with people, stirs up the priests and the Levites. These are the ones who are critical to temple worship. They're the only ones who are supposed to handle all the holy things and take the sacrifices and be inside. So they've got to be there if we're going to have a temple. So they're stirred up. And then a whole bunch of other people who come with them. The Lord stirred up the same desire in each of their hearts. One and all, they developed the conviction, we need to go back to the city of the great king, Mount Zion, and rebuild his temple where we can worship him. That took hold, that, that idea. We've got to do this. We're going to make the 800-mile journey. We're going to suffer whatever we need to suffer to get there, but we're going to do it. It's a stirring of devotion to God, rising up, seizing the opportunity that God has provided through Cyrus. This is a pattern for our renewal. God initiates it. God's the center of it. But our experience of it is going to depend in part on whether we go for it or not. Whether we respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and step out in faith and follow the Lord in obedience to His will. There's joy to be had. There's peace to enjoy. There's love to extend to others and to receive from others. And all the fruits of the Spirit that are listed in Galatians Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All that stuff is available to us. There are people who are going to encounter the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ through our witness. There's renewal of heart and mind to be experienced as we rise up and pursue God. And like it was for the exiles, it will take some work. It will take some effort. We have some barriers to laying hold of renewal. The biggest one is unbelief about the saving work of Jesus Christ. Without humbling ourselves, without embracing Jesus as our only hope in life and death, we can't experience these things. That would be impossible. We need Him to renew us by giving us the Holy Spirit through faith. 
So we start there. Make sure of that. <laughs> Make sure where you're at with the Lord. Have you responded with a yes to the fact that Christ died for our sins, that he died for your sins? That's where we start. That's where renewal starts. But even once that's happened, we still have hurdles to renewal. One for sure, this is something that everybody can relate to, I think, the distraction of our phones. There's an interesting world out there through this magical portal. But a lot of the things that are out there are also deadening to our souls. Yeah, I heard a ding. Like, <laughs> we can't even have one sermon without the, with all that rushing in, right? Like it's just there. Every day, all day and night, you can have as much of it as you want and nobody tells you no, unless it's your mom, you know? But like, we're just, it's just there, rushing in, all that endless feeds about everything that is not about Jesus. And a lot of it's contrary to Jesus. Phones are good, but Jesus is better. Jesus is essential. But that can be a distraction. It's a, it's. It's a hindrance to renewal when we're feeding on the world. And I'm not saying the world doesn't have good stuff in it. It does. But where's our heart? What's it wrapped around? What do we love to go after when we have free time? You know, is it ever the Lord? That's an indication of where, what might be blocking us from moving forward. Life trauma is another barrier to renewal in Christ. Sometimes it's just difficult to make sense of all the bad things that happen to us. Things that we think shouldn't happen if God is real. We're limited in the amount of pain that we can bear. Sometimes we just fall apart. But this is where the Psalms become our faithful companions for renewal. Psalm 85.6, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So that's written by somebody who gets it. You know, I'm not rejoicing. Will you revive us again? <laughs> me and my, my church, me and the people that I'm in relationship, will you revive us again? Because right now we're not doing so well. We have psalms that express that. People have been in that place, but they knew where to go. They knew to go to the Lord. They knew God is the center of renewal. So Lord, would you give it to us? That's why we're planning on having a weekly prayer meeting beginning in the fall. The starting date is to be decided, but we want it to be weekly. We want it to be exactly one hour so people have time to go do other things as well. And we want it to be directed to pray for certain things. And one of those things we'll pray for is, Lord, revive us again. We always need it. Lord, pour out more of your Spirit upon us, a heart to worship you, a heart to seek the welfare of the city, which we're going to learn about how to do after this with the equip class. We're going to be praying for that. We're going to be praying for renewal because it is something we can seek. We can ask God to stir. I'll close with this. What have we learned from the opening of Ezra? Well, if we want to be renewed individually and as a church, we know where to look. We look to God and to Christ because renewal comes from God. And we experience it in this life to some degree 
as we respond to his promptings to live in devotion to him. And we will experience it completely in the life to come. Nothing will be held back there. We can be sure of that as believers in Christ. So may the Lord renew us more and more as we pursue him together. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your gracious pursuit, for not leaving us dead in our trespasses and sins. If there's anyone this morning, Lord, whose heart hasn't been awakened to that, if they're still in the deadness, we ask, Lord, for now for you to stir like you stir in Cyrus's heart, you stir it in our hearts. Let there be faith that grows. Let there be a, a new encounter with the living Christ. Let there be joy in life. And for those who are struggling, who are believers, but it's life trauma, it's distraction, whatever it is, which give them grace to be free from that. Um, today, just new habits that form, new mental pathways that are formed that run towards grace and hope that you've given us in your word. We ask you to do that. We thank you, Lord, for your empowering spirit who gives us the ability to do these things. We thank you for your mercy and your love, which are separate from all of that. We thank you for the promise of eternal life in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a prayer uh, that the Lord would lead us and stir us.